and it's been a very good thing. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Somebody got long-winded last week, and we didn't finish the study. Not sure who that was. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to start reading at verse 6. We'll go to the end of the chapter. I'll review some of the points from last week, and we'll move on. And then I'm going to give a short study on baptism, because today, as is our tradition, we have our baptism, our yearly baptism, on the day we celebrate our birthday as a church, which we will be doing today, 3 o'clock at the Bowley's house. Maps are at the information booth. At this point, you don't need to sign up if you'd like to be baptized, if the Lord's leading you in that direction, or if you just want to come and partake of the festivities, you're more than welcome. Again, 3 o'clock. We can use some guys to show up a little bit early, about 2.30. There's some awnings to set up and some stuff just to help some of the old guys that are going to be there. And so that would be a blessing if you'd be able to do that. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 1, I'll start reading from verse 6. Now again, we're looking at the hypocrisy, we're looking at the lackadaisicalness that are in the religious, it is in the religious leaders of the time, but is also filtered down to the people. We need to see ourselves accountable in this, again, because God has called all of us to lead somebody in the Lord or the ways of the Lord. Again, chapter 1, verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you, priests, who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible or a waste. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands." For from the rising of the sun, even till it's going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name is to be feared among the nations. And Father, because we are a people who respect you, because we have a fear for you, we present ourselves to you this morning, Lord, through the teaching of your word that you would speak to us. Father, that you would renew, Lord, the passion that we are to have in every aspect of our Christian lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would not fall into religious routine. It's those people who your word speaks very strongly against But, Father, we would rejoice in the knowledge of who you are, just singing a new song within our hearts of a fresh awareness of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, last week we saw, because of a series of situations and circumstances, the people of Israel, they're not very happy. They've been brought out into Babylonian captivity. They've been restored But things just aren't the same, not as they were during their heyday. The temple, the temple is just a shadow of what it used to be. And the worship of God, the worship of God has just become just another routine thing to do where it is void of the heart of mankind. Spiritual leadership has become disillusioned and even going in a wrong direction. And so what we've seen, because God, through the prophet, is confronting these people, we've seen a series of charges made by the Lord. We've seen a series of charges against the arrogance of those who would even argue against them. Now again, we can do that. We can't just place it in, in, their, in, their, in their ball court so long ago. Has there been times when God has convicted you? Whatever it might be. 
Maybe it's on a Sunday morning through the teaching of God's Word. Something that has been said has kind of hit and kind of convicted you. Have you been open to that change or been open to that conviction? Or do you argue against God? Do you give every excuse why? Has it been maybe in your private time in the Word of God? Once again, every time the Word of God goes out, maybe it's just you in your living room, just that quiet time, it will not return void. That means it's going to achieve its purpose. Has there been conviction that, well, you gave an argument? Well, that was the leading of the Spirit. It was the voice of God. It was God's desire into your life to speak those things in order that change would come about and you would move forward in obedience of the Lord. I mean, just think of it, if you truly have a fear of God as He's seated upon the throne and understanding the magnitude of what that means, do you argue against God? No, we're not to argue. Maybe we do, but we are not to argue, but we are to receive. So since there is no fear of God in those who are supposed to be representing God when confronted by God, instead of humbling themselves, they try to justify themselves. So last week, we started looking at the charges that were made by the Lord, and again, the excuses that were given by the accused. In the first charge against those who do not fear God, we saw, they give him no glory. Again, verse 6, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, and when he says, I am the father, it's as if I am the one and only father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you, priests. Now again, he's, saying, he's getting in their face, if you will. To you, who are supposed to be representing me to these people, and representing these people to me, and he can speak, be speaking to you, Christian, who's supposed to be representing God to the people and the people to God, he's saying, why do you despise my name? Yet you say, and this again is their argument, the rebuttal, yet you say, in what way are we despising your name? What is the chief reason we saw that God created you, that God saved you and matures you so that you would fear him and keep his commandments? Again, the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he came to that precise, uh, that precise decision, that that's what the will of God is. The leaders of this day in Malachi, keeping in mind Malachi is about 400 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, they're doing neither. And we need to consider again, are we in that same boat? Are we in that same? We must consider, do we call him Lord, Lord, and then not do the things that he says? Are we taking his name in vain? Keeping in mind what it means to take his name in vain. To take his name in vain is to call yourself a Christian and truly to not act like one, to misrepresent God to the people within the church and people outside of the church. Again, we need to take inventory. We need to take stock of our lives. Now, again, this is leadership, and you're more than welcome to take an inventory of my leadership without a doubt, and I need to be open to that. But we have to make this personal. We've got to do it in each of our lives because it's only then that we are truly going to see a movement of the Holy Spirit within the body of Christ and see in that body achieve the purposes that God has for it. Secondly, we then saw the next charge against those who do not fear God. They pollute the worship that is due to God. Again, verse 7, You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? All through Exodus and through to Numbers, they are told to present the sacrifice as a lamb without blemish. God demanded to have that which was perfect. Again, the fulfillment was to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also it's an expression of your heart. It's an expression of faith. Because the idea is you're given to God with the expectation of God to give back to you. Matter of fact, what you are giving to God came from God's hand in the first place. And so you can draw, you can draw parallels between the sacrifice back then and the giving here at the church today. God says, I want that which is perfect. He has given parameters to what they are to give to him. And so as I have this perfect lamb, I would think, 
boy, this lamb is perfect shape. It, it would produce fine stock. And so what I'm thinking of is I'm thinking of the future. Probably produce, healthy lamb would produce a lot of wool. There would be a lot of value in that. And so you'd be thinking of the future and what you were able to get. You've got it right there in your hand, but if I give it to be sacrificed, the first thing you're going to do, they're going to cut its throat. They're going to drain the blood out of it. They're going to burn the thing on the altar and then it's just completely gone. Well, the question would be, as God has commanded you to offer that lamb, do you have enough faith in God, the God who first gave that lamb to you, that God is going to give more? See, in essence, that's the first fruits. But the first fruits were always given with the expectation of so many more to come. In our giving to the Lord, and you make the decision what that amount is to be, but are you able to give? Are you able to give wholeheartedly to the Lord with the expectation that the God who has first given me what I have given will, again, provide for me in the future, that my hope and my trust would truly be in God? If our, God, if our bodies are God's temple, then our hearts truly need to be his altar, the Lord God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of there. But as he dwells inside of me, my heart is the altar in which I offer sacrifice to him. Because God's not broke, doesn't need my money, doesn't need my service, doesn't need my preaching. But he, through his love and compassion, chooses to use me. But it's all based upon, what have I put upon that altar? I need to give of my passions, I need to give of my desires, I need to give of my heart to the Lord. That's an acceptable sacrifice. And so what do you give as an expression of your heart? When it comes to giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Corinth and, and their desires to give and how they need to give, he's collecting an offering for the church back in Jerusalem. The church back in Jerusalem is going through a time of famine. They're in desperate need. And Paul has, has told them, consider yourself. Consider yourselves how you were in desperate need. Remember how you were without faith in God? Matter of fact, you were without the knowledge of God. But because of the church, look at all that you've received. The knowledge of Jesus Christ, and through that came the word of God, and through the word of God came the salvation of your souls. And so since they've provided that, since the church has provided that, how much of a small thing is it for you to provide back to the church in its need? In 2 Corinthians, again, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, he says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This kind of makes sense. If you throw a lot of seed out there, you're going to get a lot of crops back. If you throw a little bit of seed, because, well, I don't want to waste my seed. I want to hold on to the seed. What if there's a famine and there's no seed next year? Well, then just don't be surprised if you don't get a lot of crops. And so he's using this physical illustration for spiritual reasons. Verse 7, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. So sow your seed as you can comfortably do in the Lord, as you can do in faith. And in essence, what he's saying is don't sow too little, but on the other hand, don't sow too much. Because if you sow too much, let's just say you throw the whole thing out there, but it's just not right in your heart there's just going to always be that conflict within you. And so we always need to be stretching ourselves in the Lord, but sow that seed based upon a time of prayer and seeking the Lord out, and then rejoice in that which you sow. And God, verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always have all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So that as you give to God... God would continue to give to you. So if I don't give to God, then God's not going to give to me. God meets us in grace. God meets us in grace. And this isn't the tithe of the Old Testament. This isn't something that we're going to give you. You know what? We noticed your offering was a little low today. I mean, would you go to this church if Pastor Mike called you on every Tuesday evening and, you know, I looked at your offering, you're a little down, got to pick it up there. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to that church. But... On the other hand, sometimes we can kind of take it for granted. I, I purposely don't ask for money. I, I don't make it a big point. 
It is a point of worship, so we do do that. I'm not ashamed of it. I've been told at times we shouldn't you know, receive an offering at all or we shouldn't receive an offering when we have company here, you know, such as an outreach. And all. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm just not ashamed of it. And, and that, you know, that, that's why we would never call you or make a big thing personally about it because it's between you and God. I do what I believe that God has called me to do. And in the midst of all of that, we should be able to find joy. And the only reason I'm not going to find joy is if I'm not doing what God has called me to do. Um, my wife and I, for 18 years at this church, in our last church, we give 10% of what we bring in. We get our paycheck. My wife gets a small retirement from the, uh, the state when she served as a, or worked as a librarian. And, uh, but my paycheck comes from the church, and as God gives to me, I give back to the Lord. We support a few other ministries as well. But again, each person needs to do as God purposes within their heart so that you would have a contentment in the Lord. I would not want you to give 10% and thinking you're doing something spiritual and have this bitterness of heart. That's not going to work. So again, whatever it is that you're able to freely give, God will freely receive. Thirdly, the next charge against those who fear God, they harm the people. Again, verse 8, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? By accepting these kinds of sacrifices, they're misrepresenting the people to God. They're allowing the people to do that which is unbiblical, and it's just not correct. A biblical fear of God amongst the leadership will foster a biblical fear of God amongst the people. If these priests had that fear of God, then the people would. And so the priests should be able to look at the people and see a reflection of their ministries. And so I can whine and complain about my child or whoever it might be that I have influence over, but really what they are is, is a reflection of me. And the thing about it is, it's a theme verse of this of this. Uh, of this book of the Bible, chapter 3, verse 7, God says, hey, you can always start over with me and I'll start over with you. If we ever go in a bad direction in these things, we can always stop, turn around, and go in the right direction. That's called repentance. Later on in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul in chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, will bring a charge against the Jews of that day. And he'll tell them, it's probably one of the worst things you can tell somebody, because of you... The name of God is blasphemed. And there's been so many people upon TV, and then you've seen them on the news, these supposedly pastors that have fallen. And, you know, there are some pastors that have fallen as well. People have fleeced the flock and whatever. And you could bring the same charge against some of them. Because of you, the name of God is blasphemed. Now, not one of us is a perfect person. There's no doubt about that. Everybody sins and falls short of the glory of God. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. But those who are willfully doing harm, ignoring the call of the spirit, are those people who blaspheme the name of the Lord through their so-called ministries. It's one thing to sin against God. It's even a more dreadful thing to call somebody else to sin against him. Fourthly, the next charge against those who do not fear God, their prayers are not heard. Verses 9 through 11. But now entreat or seek after God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle a fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even till it's going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Now that's, that's an amazing statement to the Jewish ears. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great amongst the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, we know that this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody, is, is there anybody here who's Jewish? Is there anybody at all here who's Jewish? Nobody? Nobody at all. So we're all Gentiles. And so this, this came to fulfill. If you're a Gentile, you don't need to raise your hand. <laughs> because you're either a Jew or a Gentile. It's one or the other. If there's no Jews, then it's all Gentile. But nonetheless, this has been fulfilled. Here we have here, who is there among you who would shut the doors? And that's basically what they were doing. 
The idea is, is shutting the doors of the temple. Why? Well, they just said, I mean, it's through their mannerisms that they have done this, not physically, and through how they've been accepting an impure sacrifice. It's as if they've boarded up the temple. Now, keep in mind what it means to board up the temple. To board up the temple would be just about the same thing as if we lock, close your Bible. You're not able to seek God. I mean, especially to the Jewish mind, based upon the Old Testament worship system. It's because I have to offer the sacrifice or my sins aren't covered. That's the only place that I can truly worship God. And that's why the temple was done away with, with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, because then the temple was no longer necessary. But back then, well, since they have defiled the sacrifice, why even open the temple doors? And the Lord is saying, since you guys had this great privilege, Remember Israel? Israel is nothing. They're nothing apart from God. Today, they don't even exist apart from God. But God has set his love upon them. He has set his grace upon them because he wants to be reflected through Israel into our lives. There was never anything special about Israel apart from God. And so God wanted all the people of the earth to see what a powerful what a powerful God he is as he works through his people. And he's saying, and look what you've done. And you just, is all I ever ask back is that you would glorify me as your God. And unfortunately, all these other nations, they glorify their gods that don't even exist to a greater magnitude than you glorify yours. Some hard things have happened, sure. The Babylonian captivity, and you're not the nation that you used to be. But that was because of you guys, God could in essence say. It's not because of me. And I can arrogantly stand before the Lord and tell him every bad thing that's going on in my life. I could stand before the Lord and tell him everything that I think should be going on or the things that I need. But that's the argument of a fool. Because the only thing that I really deserve is judgment. But God has given me grace. God has given me grace, and he has kept me for these, for me, for these 58 years. And look how God has provided for each and every one of us. Maybe not to the degree that you would have liked. You wouldn't probably have wanted those hard times that you've experienced, but God uses all these things. All things work together for the good. He uses these things for his reasons and his purposes. And these people who will foolishly make arguments against God because of the hardships that go on in a believer's life or out there in the world don't understand that we deserve the quagmire, but we have eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ that is set before us. We're not of this world. As I've heard Greg Laurie say, for the born-again believer, this is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. For the people who aren't saved, this is as close to heaven as they'll ever get. And so we need to thank God. We need to honor God through our, through our prayers, through our, our sacrifices. And again, that would be the sacrifice of your heart. And then fifthly, a description of the personality of the one who does not fear God, verses 12 through to the end of the chapter. But you profane it, and that you say the table of the Lord. Now when he says the table of the Lord, he's talking about the altar. The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. It's of no use. And you say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Now, that's kind of, I don't want to say it's humorous because it's very serious, but what if we're in here and I'm thinking, you know what, God's just blessed me, and I just want, you know, when they pass the offering bag around, I just want to give to the Lord. And so I turn, and there's a, a woman sitting next to me, and I open up your purse, take out money out of your wallet, and put it in there, and think I did service to the Lord. You probably wouldn't appreciate that, and, you know, that wouldn't really fly before God, but that's exactly what they're doing. You bring the stolen. He went to his neighbor and stole one of his lambs and brought it to the altar. You bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. This is how you bring an offering? And God says, should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed or condemned be the deceiver. Now, it's important to understand, this isn't the ignorant the ignorant would receive grace. This is the deceiver. Who are they deceiving? They're trying to deceive God. In actuality, they're deceiving themselves. This person is condemned. Why? Because he just doesn't understand God, has no respect for God, does not honor God. But cursed be the deceiver 
who has in his flock a male, and the idea when he says a male, this is the sacrifice that was to be offered, it encompasses so much more than that, and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name, and this is an emphatic statement, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Not just Israel, but all of creation. And so Israel was to be displaying that fear of God through their worship system. And if you would look at Israel back then and even through to the time of Christ, they were in it for the flesh and definitely not in it for the Lord. There was no fear of God whatsoever. When there's no fear of God, judgment is soon to come. Look at the state of our nation. Look at the state of our society. As you look at it generally, a cross-section once again, there's no fear of God amongst the people. I mean, just the laws that are passed, the decisions are made, God is not considered in these things whatsoever. Through so many churches, they dishonor God by people coming in. Every person that comes into the church, the leadership of that church is responsible for. And what I mean by that, in order to, or for the purpose of feeding that person and making sure that what God has for that person that day is available to that person. For 18 years, it strikes fear into my heart. Even this morning, I'm thinking, why am I nervous? I've been doing this for 18 years, four times a week. Why am I nervous? Well, far be it from God that I would ever stop being nervous. Because what it tells me is when you stop being nervous, then you start taking it for granted. When you start taking it for granted, there's no fear of God. I get excited. I'm always excited what God may do on a Sunday morning. I mean, when I, like, two weeks, we're going to be at the men's retreat, I won't be here, and I just know something really good's going to go on. Joe McTarsney from Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, is going to be here teaching us next, or our church next Sunday in our absence. But still, there, there's a little bit of, there's always a little bit of fear. And there should be a little bit of fear in everything that we do. If you're up here leading worship, if you're serving coffee in the coffee, whatever it might be, we have to understand that God has chosen me to represent him in this ministry for the purposes that he has for that ministry. That's why if you're a person that vacuums the carpet or you preaches the sermon, we're all the same in the sight of God. God has reason and purpose in all of that. Again, if you want a living illustration, when you get home today, take your little fingernail and the fingernail on your little finger and tear it off. Yeah, you know how that's going to feel, or in your little toe, one or the other, and that's going to incapacitate their whole body. You say, well, that's just such an insignificant part of my body. Well, every part is really important to the total function of that body. And it's the same thing within the body of Christ. We are all important. Now, the most important thing that happens in a church is the giving of the word, but all the people are just equally important in the sight of God. And so do we have, and this is for the individual, do you have a fear of the Lord and honor him in all aspects of your Christian life? Well, today is just such a day that we give that opportunity for obedience to the Lord. We have been called and commanded. We've been commanded by the church, go forth and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the church has a commission to baptize. Also, there's a call to the people to be baptized. We are to be baptized for or because of, we'll look at that in a little bit, the forgiveness of our sins. And so today, we are going to have at 3 o'clock a baptism. It's going to be one of those times in our Christian lives that we know that we are in the perfect will of God. When we have communion, we know that we are in the perfect will of God. At that moment, maybe a little thing, but don't take it as a routine thing. If you're being baptized, you should be baptized in the fear of the Lord, understanding that as I'm going down into the water, I should have died. But as I come up, the only reason I come up is, is by the grace of God and because the pastor will be arrested if he keeps you under for too long. And so... But have a fear of the Lord, because this is an act of obedience. Remember what he called himself in Malachi? The Lord of hosts. And that the idea is God over heaven's army, of the power of heaven. We need to understand the magnitude of these things, not taking these things for routine, no matter how long you have heard them, to grasp onto the reality of these things. 
This is what God Almighty is saying to the church at Ontario today. And so we have this excellent illustration today, and it's the waters of baptism. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. Here's where Christ was baptized. Just to go through this fairly quickly, we've looked at this many times before, and just as a reminder, looking at the example of the Lord's baptism. Now, I remember the day of my baptism. Again, there was that feeling of perfect obedience to the Lord. But it's also one of those reference points. It's a reference point, the same as the day of my salvation, because when you go forth from that time of baptism or that day of salvation, whatever it might be, there's the temptations that can so easily grasp our lives. There's the attacks that come from the enemy that can so easily hinder our Christian lives. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3, it says, But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, speaking of baptism, then, or when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And he, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so just look at that, especially if you're being baptized today. As I said before, there's just that knowledge of being in the perfect will of God, and it's as if God is telling you, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Male or female, you're my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's important, it's essential to know that. Because what happened to Jesus right after he was baptized? Where did he go? Well, if if you're going into Jerusalem, I've been there, and here's where the Lord is baptized. In between is the wilderness. And so, as he's going into Jerusalem, as we're on our way to New Jerusalem, if you will, well, again, we have that perfect point of of obedience to the Lord, but there's going to be plenty of temptations along the way. And look at the means by which the devil tempts him. Chapter 4, verse 1 Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If. Now, Jesus knew what the Father said. The devil knew what the Father said. But what's he trying to do here? He's trying to sow doubt. If you really are the Son of God, call these rocks or cause these rocks to be turned into bread. If you really, if you're the son of God, would the father really allow you to go into this trial? If you're the son of God, would he really allow you to be hungry? If you're really the son of God and you plug in your trial, well, it's already been confirmed by the word of God because that's how you came into the kingdom of heaven is by the word of God. It's already been confirmed by the word of God that you're a child of God. John chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, those who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. But what the devil tries to do, he tries to sow doubt. If you look down at verses 5 and 6, then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Test Him. Test the love of God. Well, somebody who tests the Word of God does not trust in the Word of God. And so, those are the trials, the the points of trials where the devil attacks. And so you have those days of perfect obedience in the will of God that are designed by God to strengthen you during the time of tribulation, during the time of temptation. And so it's these times that we need to cling. I can remember the day that I was baptized. It was a special day in my life, and it ought to have been a special day in your life. So I just want to close out today's services. What is baptism? Look, there's three main views on what baptism is. The first view on what baptism is, is the contact view. That would be the view that the Catholic Church holds to. They believe in contact with the sanctified or the holy water, that something spiritual occurs just simply through that contact. That the person being baptized is cleansed from original sin. Well, the problem with that is it's just that one sin that Adam committed, but we have a sinful nature. The actual sins and all punishment due them are remitted by baptism, the Catholic Church holds to. 
And baptism, they would say, is necessary for membership in the church and also salvation for the believer. They say that these things are so for the purpose, really, of bringing the church into the equation and man's abilities into the equation. We do not hold to that position. I believe it is a very unbiblical situation or position. The Bible tells us that it's by faith alone in Jesus Christ in his atoning death upon the cross by which we are saved. If you add anything to the cross, it's as if you have climbed up to the cross next to the Lord Jesus Christ and move over. I'm climbing up here with you. But there's not a thing that we could do to save our souls. And anything I add to the salvation of Jesus Christ, it's just going to dilute from what the Lord has done, if you will, as if I could. And so the only thing I could possibly do by attaching anything I'm able to do is to detract from what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And so if salvation is necessary for, I'm sorry, if baptism is necessary for salvation, I could say, look what Christ's done and look what I have done too. So that's why I'm right with God and then I'll start spreading this doctrine of works for you. But we're told in the Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. So if salvation, I'm sorry, if baptism was for salvation, I, I was baptized by Pastor Chuck. Who were you baptized? You were baptized by Pastor Mike? Ha! I've got a better baptism than you. Well, I was baptized in the Pacific Ocean. Where were you baptized? Well, I was baptized in the Bowley's Pool. Ha! I was baptized better than you. And we would start doing those things. We do those things already. I've heard people, well, I'm saved. I went forward at a Billy Graham conference. Well, I don't care. Nobody's more saved than anybody else. See, what you're starting to do is you're starting to add that human element of works. Just get saved. Just receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just be baptized. Now, should it be dunking or sprinkling or squirting or whatever? What, I, I've sprinkled on people. We've had some people in wheelchairs. or I think last time there was a, a lady who was just deathly afraid of getting into the pool. That's fine. We sprinkled water. She's just as baptized as somebody that we dunked under. We dunk under because that's what we see in the Scripture. But again, nobody's more baptized than anybody else. Not of works, least anyone should boast, for we are His workmanship. The works are all based upon Christ. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The problem with this view is baptism for salvation, again, would be adding to the Lord's work upon the cross. Second view is the covenant view. This would be the view of the Reformed Church. Their idea is dad was chosen for salvation, mom was chosen for salvation, so it just goes to follow that the offspring would be chosen for salvation. It's why they also exercise infant baptism. And so for them, baptism is a sealing of God's choosing. The problem here is, there's no need for repentance. There's no need for a relationship with God. I mean, to baptize a baby, how do you know that that baby is going to go on and honor God? How do you know that that child is even going to be saved? Well, again, if I hold to that doctrine that I'm chosen and my wife's chosen, well, I would just believe that my child's chosen, but that's not how it works. There's always a separation when it comes to things spiritual between parents and child. Now, if you're a, a, a Bible-believing, born-again believer, your child has a great opportunity for salvation. But my parents, my salvation, they weren't even saved. They were Catholic. They weren't saved, but God, through his grace, he brought me into his kingdom of heaven. And after I was brought into his kingdom of heaven, it's then that I was baptized. Problem here is, is that, again, there's no need for that repentance a relationship with God. And that was central to the doctrine that Jesus Christ came preaching. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew chapter 4. We believe that we are baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. If baptism was central, it would say in repentance and remission and baptism should be preached. But that's not what is included there. 
because although baptism is important and it's been commanded by God that we would do those things, it's not essential for salvation. And so you have the contact view, the covenant view, and then what we hold to is called the conversion view. This is the view that we are baptized because of salvation and not for salvation. It's the next logical step after salvation. Turn over in your Bibles to Acts, Acts chapter 2. I'm turning you there because this is a verse that is used as the proof text that you need to be baptized to be saved. But there's a misinterpretation here. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. The proof is in the preposition. And it all comes about through context, and it comes about through interpretation of the Greek. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So I look at that and I say, All right, well then, that means that I'm not saved unless I get baptized. Well, the key is in the preposition. The preposition for, that can be translated, and it needs to be translated in context three ways. It can be translated for, or it can be translated on account of, or it can be translated on the basis of. And so how do I know how that needs to be translated? I need to look at the Bible as a whole, and that's the context that I need to go to here. And I see nowhere else that it would say that I need to be baptized in order to be saved. And so in translating that preposition, I must then reconsider it, and I must look at it, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the account of the remission of sins, or on the basis of the remission of sins. Scripture-wide, that makes a whole lot more sense. You can't build the whole doctrine just off of one verse. Now, every verse is true, and it is the Word of God. There's no doubt about it. Sometimes you've got to look a little bit deeper than the translators. Translators were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was the original Word of God that was, tra- that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have to be students of the Word. And so this is why we baptize and we baptize born-again believers who have confessed a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. As you come into the pool with me, I will say, Fred, because you have proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the only thing you're going to get is wet. That's the only thing that's going to happen. And so this is why we do not practice infant baptism. This is why we do not baptize for the dead. That makes no sense. And this is why we do not baptize through proxy, because, again, makes no sense whatsoever. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Notice, it doesn't say he who does not believe and is not baptized. It says he who does not believe is going to be condemned. It was just a natural extension of a born-again believer's life that he would believe and be baptized, but that is not a proof text that you need to be baptized for salvation. So baptism, we have to understand first, it's an illustration. And we have that illustration spelled out for us in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, it says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? The word baptized means immersed. We were immersed into his death. As surely as Christ died upon the cross, spiritually speaking, we died to the old man. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Again, as you're dunking the person into the water, the picture is being buried in death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And so the idea is you're dead, you died to your sins in the old person, but also as you're brought back out, you are now alive to newness of life, to the glory of the Father. Again, it's a picture of the visible gospel. Secondly, baptism is a proclamation, a public proclamation that you believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus died and was raised, and so will I. 
It's that public declaration that I am now in the hands of God because I've simply believed the gospel that was at one point preached to me. It's an illustration, it's a proclamation, and it's an identification. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. It says, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It's this identification. The idea is, is that we are to put on this uniform. And what I mean by uniform, we're to put on Christ. That as I sit in the body of Christ, I am part of that church. I am part of the family of God. Baptism, it's an illustration, proclamation, identification. And lastly, it's an association. This is not so much an association with Christ. It is, but we've talked about this. But this again is an association with the body of Christ, with the church. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. This is what born-again believers do. This is what members of a true church do. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. So this is not just an association with those in attendance. It's not just an association with those at Calvary Chapel, Ontario, but it's an association with believers throughout the ages. We see it in the Old Testament. Church history tells us that baptism has endured throughout the ages and it continues to live today. And so this is why with this association, even if you're not being baptized, it's important to support the people that are. Because again, they're just re confirming that God's hand is still moving, not just in this church, but the church. That God is still mindful of his people. And again, if you're looking at a third party, you know, if you're looking at it from a distance, you think, what are those people doing? The bald guy's in the pool dunking people under the water. What's happening here? And, and the people coming down in the water, and this is one of the blessings that I've mentioned before, I get to see the tears, and I get to see the emotion, and it's that tears and emotion with God, and I see the realness and the genuineness of it. And it's just, it's just a blessing because it's at times like this that we know that we're in the perfect will of God. So ultimately, baptism, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. You need to seek the Lord out. You've been walking with the Lord for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and never been baptized. Today is the day. Get baptized. If you just received the Lord last week, get baptized. Get baptized. Because, because it sets a standard of obedience in your Christian life. And again, also that point of reference that you can always look back and say, that is that moment that I came to that higher awareness that I, as a child of God, and the Father at that point, was well pleased with me. So those times when the devil tries to deceive me, I can reference back to that point and I can be strengthened in my trials and in my tribulations. Father, we see in Malachi how far the people came. And Lord, it's things like baptism that keep us, Lord, in line with your desires and the things that the early church did so that, <clears throat> so Father, that we would not we would not get far away through man's ideas and the people's desires. And so, Father, I pray that we would stay rooted and grounded in your word. And as we are, Father, we would just rejoice in, and Lord, just all that you continue to do. And so, Father, I lift up our baptism this afternoon, that you would bless it. I pray that it would be an intimate time with your people. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen those who are being baptized and be glorified through their acts of obedience. And so, Father, I pray that it would just be a time of rejoicing. Rejoicing in the 18 years that you have given us as a church. And for that, Lord, I just thank you and praise you because it's been all about you. But also rejoicing in this moment, this day that you have given us, Lord, to just simply, once again, reconfirm the obedience that we are to have. That, Father, we would continue to have a fear of God. We continue to seek after you. 
And Lord, I just lift up this time right now. If there's anybody here in this room who understands that, well, I need to be baptized, but you're not sure that you're saved. Again, everybody that Jesus Christ called, he called so, he, he did so, he called them in a public manner. And so just take this time to check your heart. Check your heart. Have you made that outward proclamation for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your life to God as Lord and Savior? And if you have, there's this opportunity right now, another act of obedience before we have our baptism this afternoon. If God's laying these things upon your heart, give that outward expression even right now so that you know that you would be baptized. Because a common thing we say in communion is, is that it's possible to eat and drink unto judgment. And what that means is, is to hold those elements of communion in your hand, but to hold them in unbelief. You'll be held accountable for that. And it's just as bad to be baptized in unbelief. That means although you went into the water, you didn't really die with Christ. Although you came out of the water, you didn't really spring forth into new life. And so there is a process to these things. And so I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here who's yet to receive you, if there's anybody here who's yet to come into your kingdom, that right now, Lord, with eyes are closed and heads are bowed, that you would impress upon their heart for them to make that outward expression. If, if you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, if you know you need to make this profession, especially before baptism, raise your hand and just allow me to acknowledge it and then allow us to pray for you. Is there anybody here? Anybody in the overflow area? God can see you there. But is this something that you need to do so that you wholeheartedly would be able to be baptized or wholeheartedly just know that, that you're saved? Anybody at all here this morning? Don't allow this moment to get past you. Anybody? Anybody at all? Hard thing to do, but it should be a hard thing to do. Going to the cross was a hard thing, but Christ did it. What are we willing to do in proportion to what Christ has done for us? Anybody at all before we go on? Father, all here claim to have that right relationship. And so, Father, we so look forward to this afternoon. And, Lord, I pray that it would truly be a time of family, that we would rejoice in one another, that, Lord, as we come together for that baptism, that we would understand that you are there amongst us and what we are doing is very pleasurable to you. And so, Father, not only do we seek to do that this afternoon, but, Father, in every instance that you give us in order to be that witness, and so, Lord, we just lift up today, and again, I pray for those who are being baptized, that you would meet them in a very personal and intimate way. Father, that you would bless them, and that, Lord, this would just be the first act of so many of obedience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Uh, we are not going to have pastor to person today. We will pick that up again next week. Um, just a couple of announcements. Again, the baptism, we could use some help.